Our text this morning comes from Matthew's Gospel, uh, the very, 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 very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which uh, many of you will have looked at already or have just gotten there and are excited to see is a genealogy. Sure, that got some of you out of bed this morning. And it raises a question uh, of why, maybe, maybe raise a question for you. Why, why does Matthew start his gospel with a genealogy? As you may know, Matthew is one of four gospels, accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. And you compare it with the other gospels, uh, Mark. Uh, does not really have much of an introduction at all, just sort of jumps into the action, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then bam, we get, we get going into the narrative. Uh, John, John's gospel has this lengthy theological prologue, uh, and, then, and then Luke's gospel is, is perhaps the most straightforward and most helpful. He actually begins with a mission statement, a purpose statement. Uh, I, this is why, dear Theophilus, this is why I wrote this book, which is, which is very helpful because you know why you're reading it now because you can just understand because it's right there. And so you might wonder, well, why doesn't Matthew do that? And, and the truth is that Matthew does do that, uh, that his genealogy, the genealogy with which he begins his gospel is in fact his book's purpose statement. And with that in mind, then let us hear Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to, after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad, Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. This really is, it may not be abundantly obvious to you right now, but this really is Matthew's purpose statement. This is the reason he is writing this gospel and what you need to take away both from his introduction then and from the gospel as a whole is understanding of who Jesus is. That Jesus Christ is your peace. He is your Sabbath rest. So let's look at this genealogy as Matthew has presented to us in 
three parts. Uh, the first verse is sort of the introduction, the title, uh, and then it gets into the genealogy proper in verse 2. But really, it's broken down into three sections, and the first section teaches us that Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham. And so it's important for us to understand then, in the first place, that the Christ came through Abraham. And so who's Abraham? Abraham is the first of the patriarchs, the fathers of the Old Testament, from whom would come the nation of Israel. And what makes Abraham important is that God made a covenant with him. And that covenant rested first and foremost upon the Lord's relationship with Abraham, which is expressed in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where we read that he, that is Abraham, he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Perhaps the most important thing to know about Abraham then is that Abraham believed in the Lord and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. In other words, as the Apostle Paul will later go to great lengths to dwell on in the book of Romans, is that Abraham was justified by faith. That is, he was declared righteous, not because he was a righteous man, God saw the righteous deeds he had done, but because Abraham believed in him. Abraham had faith in God, therefore the Lord declared him righteous. That implies something may not have been absolutely entirely clear to Abraham. It may not jump into your mind as soon as you read that text. But it does raise a question. And it's this. How is it that the Lord is going to declare Abraham righteous? Uh, by what means? What is it that Abraham's faith is appropriating? What is it that Abraham is believing? Where is he putting his trust? If God is going to declare Abraham righteous, if he's going to call him righteous because of his faith in God and in his promises, then the, God, then the Lord is going to provide some means, some way of bringing that about, of making Abraham able to be called righteous. In other words, Abraham, by looking to God in faith to declare him righteous, then is believing in some way, shape, or form that the Lord is going to provide a Savior, someone to save him from his sins. Even if that's not absolutely clear in Genesis 15, that is what ultimately is underlying Abraham's faith, as Paul the Apostle makes clear later on in the book of Romans, which I'm only doing one sermon this morning, so I'll do the sermon on Romans on another occasion. But that's, that's the important thing to get from Genesis 15, 6. And, and if you've read Romans, you know that Paul's like, yeah, have you not read Genesis 15, 6? It's, it's pretty obvious, obvious, all of us. So that's the point that we need to get about Abraham and why Abraham is so important. But there's another important thing to take away from this first section of the genealogy, a genealogy that runs from Abraham to David by itself, uh, sort of a mini genealogy, the first genealogy in this longer genealogy. And it's that the Christ was preserved through sin. And Matthew tells us this by pointing out the names of three women. This is a, what we call a patrilineal uh, genealogy. And I'm an English teacher uh, by profession right now, and so we are now introducing the English portion of the lesson, uh, that the patra, uh, is from the Greek, means father, and lineal means line. So that's really easy. So patrilineal, and so it's the line of the father. And so he's giving, you'll notice, he goes by fathers, uh, Abraham, uh, Judah, Perez, etc. But then he throws in several of the mothers uh, by, whom, uh, by whom each descendant was born, three of them. 
And why these three women? Well, these three women, because these are points in that history, in that genealogy, in that list of descendants, when the line, the, the family line, the messianic line, the line of the Christ, the Christ is endangered, was endangered by sin. It might have, it might have fallen apart completely. Uh, and that's because in the first instance, we have Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And that takes us back to Genesis 32. Briefly, in Genesis 32, uh, Tamar was married, to the, uh, was, was married to one of Judah's sons. Uh, he died, and according to the Leverett Law, which I won't get into completely here. That's, that's, that's the third sermon, the second, second sermon I'm skipping. Okay, so that's, we're on, anyway. Uh, they, they, that, but according to that one, uh, that law, then he was, she was given a marriage to the younger brother. Uh, the Lord slew him for his sin. And so, uh, and so Judah was afraid to give her marriage to the third son. And so there wasn't going to be a descendant. Uh, Judah's line would have died out because there would have been no heirs to the line. And so Tamar tricked uh, tricked Judah into having sex with her, and that was how Perez was born. Uh, otherwise, the line would have died out if Tamar had not acted in that way. Uh, Rahab, Rahab, Rahab is in the book of Joshua, and you may remember that it was Rahab, the prost- who was a prostitute, who hid the spies who were sent by Joshua to to figure out, to to, to spy out, to seek to um. There's a word that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but there, to 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 to. Scout out, that's the word, and it was an S word, to scout out Jericho, and to, but they were going to be killed by the Jerichoians, uh, Jerichites, those people. And so, so she hid them, and they were able to escape, and Israel was able to take, was able to defeat the city of Jericho. If it hadn't been for the actions of Rahab, the prostitute, that would, humanly speaking, Jericho would not have been defeated. Humanly speaking, uh, Israel may have failed in its mission to conquer the promised land. And then the third, the third woman, it may be familiar to many of you, is Ruth. Uh, some, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. And Ruth is very interesting because she was a Moabitess. She's not an Israelite by birth. She was, she's from the city, I'm sorry, from the nation of Moabite, the neighboring country, and she was married, she married a son of Elimelech. Elimelech and his sons both died, and if she had not married then Boaz, and she had not basically talked Boaz into marrying her, then Elimelech's family line would have died out, and there would have been no heir, and the line would have died out completely. Now, what's interesting, uh, so those are all interesting Bible stories, Right, some of those we don't, especially Genesis 32, we don't want to bring up very often in Sunday school. But, but that's that's the, the nonetheless interesting Bible stories, and those are interesting things. So Matt, maybe Matthew just wants to pique your interest. But there's but there's more going on there. Interestingly, each of those women is associated with harlotry, with prostitution. Uh, Tamar tricks Judah into sleeping with her by pretending that she's a prostitute. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute by profession, and though Ruth certainly was not a prostitute, she's from Moab, Moab, which in the Bible, particularly because of some events that occur in the book of Numbers, is a nation that is repeatedly associated with prostitution, with the sin of prostitution. And yet it's through these three women who, in our minds, uh, might very easily be associated with untoward practices who are associated with sin in some way, shape, or form. If not for them, if not for their actions, their brave actions on behalf of the Lord and because they exercise faith in the Lord and in his promises, the line of the Messiah would have died out. And so already, already in this genealogy, you can see Matthew is making a point. And it is that God 
works through sinners. That God, and in fact, straight up, God has no other option than to work through sinners. That everybody's a sinner. And, if, and just in case you're tempted to read through this genealogy and go like, yay, Judah, he's like the lion of God, totally cool. Oh yeah, he slept with his daughter-in-law. That's not good. Uh, sinners, that's who God works through. God works through sinners, but especially then we need to remember who these people are. There's Abraham. Abraham, the great patriarch, was justified by faith. God works through redeemed sinners. And therefore, the first message in this genealogy that already becomes clear to us is that salvation, God's salvation, his power to save, is far greater than sin. Sin, no matter how heinous, no matter how wicked, no matter how evil, can never triumph over the Lord's purpose to save his people. And so against what, humanly speaking, were very great odds, the messianic line almost died out three times, Uh, The Lord preserved the Christ who was hoped for by Abraham's faith. And so then we come to King David. King David, the great king, the king who replaced Saul on the throne. Saul, the failed king. And so maybe it's David. as, As David comes in, that there's a hope that surrounds him. There's joy that surrounds David's coronation. David's coronation, and perhaps he is the one who's going to save Israel. But of course, he is not. Because the Christ is the son of David. He is not David. And so the second part of the genealogy presents to us the Christ, the Messiah, as the son of David. Beginning then in verse 6, halfway through verse 6. Jesse begot David the king. And then the second part of the genealogy begins in the second part of chapter 6. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, it may not be, and you may have a different translation than the one that I'm using this morning, but what you may notice from there is that technically what what this reads as is uh, David the king begot Solomon by her of Uriah, which is really inelegant uh, in whatever language that you're using, whether it's Greek or Hebrew or Latvian or or what, it doesn't doesn't work. And so the the way that Matthew writes that then is to draw our attention to a problem, uh, a problem with the birth of Solomon. And that is, of course, for those of you who are familiar with the story of David from Samuel and Kings, is that David could not be the Christ. He could not be a savior because he was a wicked sinner. That the, that the woman, that the wife of whom he married uh, and, through, and, and with whom he had Solomon, who became king after David, was Bathsheba. And Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And because David had chosen to seduce Bathsheba while she was still married, he then had Uriah the Hittite killed after Bathsheba came up pregnant and it became obvious as Uriah was off at war that there was no way he could have impregnated her. And so he had Uriah killed so that he could cover up his sin by then marrying her. Which is not good. Which is a... So we got adultery, some kind of coercive sex, and murder all on top of one another. In addition to everything else that David did sinful in his life, which the Bible is not shy about either. That's David. So, there's, so, so the Messiah is, is supposed to be somebody who can save the people of God from their sins. David, as a wicked sinner, in no way, shape, or form can save the people of God. And what is depressing about David, and there are many things that are depressing about David, is that in fact, 
David is as good as it gets. That after David, it all goes downhill. That his sons, his descendants, and they're not all completely bad. There's some high points, uh, but but it's but it basically the family line uh, just sort of gets falls more and more over the years, more and more gradually into sin as we go down this list of names. Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Some of those names, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, those are great. Some of them did heroic things, but many of them did very bad, 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 bad things. And as they sinned, so the people of Israel fell into sin. The people of Judah fell into sin. And so we end, it ended, the, the Davidic line in the sense of uh, kings on the throne, a son of David on the throne of Judah, ends with the Babylonian captivity. That, as, he, as Matthew points out, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time about they were carried away to Babylon, that because of the sins of Israel and Judah, that the Lord caused Babylon, the great empire of Babylon, to come and to conquer Judah and to take away all its people, or almost all the people, into exile in Babylon, that they lost not only the throne, but they lost the land, they lost everything, that the great glory of David as king, which was manifested in particular in the reign of his son Solomon. So David was a great king, and his deeds were clothed in glory, and that's why his son was actually literally clothed in glory. Solomon in his beautiful robes, and his built the temple that was that was clad in gold, and all these things. David and his son were there were, were associated with with beauty and glory and might and power. And by the time we get to the end of the second section of the genealogy of the Christ as a son of David, there is no glory, there is no royalty, there is no power. And so if the son of David has no royal glory, if the son of David has no power, then the question is, how can he be a king? Because the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's coming to save Israel, well, he must certainly, he must certainly be a king. He has to be enthroned on the seat of David. And so that moves us then into the third section of the genealogy, which begins in verse 12, where it appears, for all intents and purposes, that the Christ is the son of captivity. He's the son of the Babylonian captivity. That this is a genealogy now of completely unimportant people, of nobodies. If you look at the names here as we pick up in verse 12, after they were brought to Babylon... Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and that's where the biblical record ends. In the sense that if you are comparing Matthew's genealogy with the Old Testament and trying to trace these names, we don't know who Abiud is. Matthew does, obviously, but we don't know who Abiud is. We don't have any historical record of him in the biblical account. He's a nobody. Uh, and then his son's a nobody, and his son's a nobody, and like frankly, many of us, if we're willing to admit it, uh, I come from a proud heritage, a long lineage of nobodies. Uh, right? That's the, you, you don't know my dad, and you don't know his dad's dad. His dad or his dad's dad, and I've come to the age where I'm just willing to accept that. That's, that's, and that's who, that's who many of us are, and that's what happened to this family. Maybe there was glory in the past, but certainly not now. These are no ones. And so that is why, in this sense, that it is. Uh, he is the son of the captivity. He is unimportant because the captivity going to Babylon is losing everything. That's when, that's when Judah and Israel lost 
everything, like literally everything. When they take you, they take you out of your house and they show and they, and they destroy your homeland, you have nothing. Everything is gone. And certainly that's, that's made more vivid, I think, for many of us by what we've seen going on in Ukraine, right? People leaving their homes and getting on a train to go to Poland or wherever it is that they can with what they can put in a backpack and then the house is gone. Everything they ever had is gone, gone, gone. There's nothing. There's nothing. And these people had nothing and they were nobodies. Even though Israel then... The, the people of Judah eventually were able, after 70 years, to return to the land and rebuild the temple. Judah was still scattered. The Israelites were still scattered across the nations. Not everyone returned. They were nobodies. They were no ones, even though they came back, even though some of them did come back. And so it appears that the Christ is a nobody. He is the son of nothing, the son of the captivity. But it's at this point that we need to take a look not just at the last section of the genealogy, but we need to take a look at the genealogy as a whole and look at what Matthew tells us in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. This is a structured genealogy. Which is to say that it's very obvious from what Matthew says here that he carefully built this genealogy. If you compare this chapter, Matthew chapter 1, with the historical record in the Old Testament, uh, he fudges some things here. He moves some things around. He drops some names out of the first section of the genealogy so he can get to 14. And then in order to get to 14, in the second and the third sections, what he does is he counts Jeconiah. Am I saying that name right? Yeah, Jeconiah. He's also called Jehoiakim in the biblical account. So this is, it's, it's aggravating when people in the Bible have two names. Just as frankly, it's aggravating when people in real life have two names. Uh, but that's, so, so it, it gets confusing sometimes. But that's, anyway, Je, Je, uh, Jeconiah, uh, Jeconiah has to count twice to get to 14. So he's, He's messing with his numbers in order, to get the, in order to get these numbers to work out, 14, 14, 14, which tells us, okay, this isn't a coincidence. And of course, everybody says, well, we're Calvinists, so we know nothing's a coincidence. But yeah, bear with me. Um, he's doing this on purpose to point something out. That's three, three sets of 14. And now, this is the math portion of the sermon, so uh, so. so Follow, if, if, if you can't follow, ask the third grader sitting next to you. Uh, they'll be able to help you with this. So three sets of 14. Three times 14 is the same as six times seven, right? Three times 14 equals six times seven. Okay, we are, we're still on board, right? So we're not, and we're not going to use X's because as an English teacher, I'm here to tell you that letters belong in English. They don't belong in math. That's end of the story. Uh, so, so we're not going to use any of that stuff. Um, but that's, so, so six times seven. Okay, well, what's seven in the Bible? Seven, seven is, well, there's seven days in the week. And that's right. The Lord gave us a seven-day week on purpose. Uh, he created all things in the space of six days, rest of the seven. So seven, especially read the Bible, super important Bible number because that's the weeks. Those are, that's the number of days in a week. And, that's, and that becomes a cycle of time, how God orders time. God orders time 
through the number seven, through sevens, and, and both seven days and then seven years, and does all sorts of things with the timing of seven. But if there's six sets of seven, then we have another way of looking at that would be six weeks. So you have six weeks. Uh, they, the six weeks, after six days, you end in a Sabbath. After six sevens, uh, you would have a seventh seven, a seventh seven. And now we move from days of the week to years. Because that's important because as I know that this morning uh, or, and throughout this week, you were doing your daily devotions in Leviticus because that's where we all go. Uh, so you'll remember Leviticus 25. And so now we're up to like the fourth sermon that I could be preaching right now, fourth or fifth. Again, I'm an English teacher. I don't do math. But anyway, uh, Leviticus 25, I'm not going to read it, but Leviticus 25 is the Sabbath section in Leviticus. And it gives the rules for the Sabbaths. And that's something that we can forget because we now live in a cycle of seven, but it's only seven days. We live in the seven-day weekly cycle. But Israel was commanded by God to live in all sorts of sevens through time. And one of the major ones was the Sabbath years. And so according to the law, that every six, after six years, sorry, hang on here. I got to use my fingers. Uh, after six years, the seventh year was a Sabbath year. So you take the year off. The Lord would provide enough in the sixth year that you didn't have to work at all on the seventh year. You'd have a year of rest. So then you go through six sets of seven. So six sevens. Stay with me. Uh, and, then, and that takes us up to 49. So you do seven sets of six years of labor, one year of rest. And then you have the 50th year. The 50th year is the Jubilee. So that is the extra special Sabbath. That's the Sabbath of Sabbaths. That's when all debts are forgiven. All land that was sold in order to pay off debts is returned to the original family that owned it. All things are set, are set right. Everything that's gone wrong because of bad crops or because of horrible business decisions or because of outright sin. Everything is put back in place and all is right again with the world and with the people of God. It's the Jubilee. And so what Matthew is telling us then, if there have been six sevens, there have been through, through Israel's history since the time of the patriarch Abraham for the people of God, they've gone through six of these things that the last age is at hand. With the coming of the Christ, we have the last age. And in Him, in Him, in His work, what He is doing, what He does, that brings, that will bring all things to an end. And then comes the Jubilee. And so what Matthew is telling us by the way that he has structured this genealogy is that Israel's rest is at hand. The end of the ages is upon us with the coming of the Christ. And that means that the great Jubilee the jubilee of jubilees, the jubilee that the law only pointed towards, that that jubilee is coming. And so now it's important for us to return to the question of the third section of this genealogy and to its peculiar title. Matthew does something odd here. In verse 17... He repeats the titles of his genealogies. So it's the genealogy of Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian captivity, and then from the captivity to Christ. So he gives us those titles. And so we have to see from verse 17 
that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of the captivity. That he is the son of nothing and nobody. That he is humble. He is a nobody. He is literally a nobody. Nobody knows who his family is. Nobody knows who these people are. Interestingly, he doesn't even have a father. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And you pay attention to that. What is Matthew saying there? Joseph is not Jesus' father. He's the son of Mary. He was born of Mary, but he is not a descendant of Joseph. So what's, what's going on there? And so now we come back to verse 1. That this son of the captivity, this nobody, has no title given to him in the third genealogy. So what does he do in verse 1? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He should have finished that, right? Each section of the genealogy gets its own title except for the third section. It's missing. And so here then the question becomes, well, of whom is Jesus the Christ? Of whom is he the son? Who is his father? Because on the one hand, say he's the son of the Babylonian captivity, and that's very nice at a conceptual level. Like, ooh, that's pretty deep. Uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of, but, but, but that doesn't actually, but technically that's not true. That's a metaphor. That's a picture. Who's his father? Well, it's not Joseph. Can't be that. It's somebody else. And so what Matthew, of course, is setting us up for is what will be revealed in the very next passage in his gospel, is that Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, the, the, the anointed one of the Lord, that he is the Son of God, that he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit and not by man, not by Joseph. That he, his origin then is on earthly origin, is on origin with men and with this, and with men in this family line, but rather from God himself. And so he is the son of the captivity and he is the son of God. He is the humiliated son of God. He is born humble. We think about Christ and his humiliation, particularly when I, when I think of Christ and his humiliation, I think of that as a Presbyterian. Uh, my thinking, of course, has been shaped. By the, Westminster, by the Westminster Shorter Catechism and Larger Catechism, we talk about the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes when we think about his humiliation, his being brought low, we think of the cross. But of course, as the catechism reminds us, that his humiliation begins at birth, being born in humble circumstance, being born in a low condition, being born as a nobody, being born into nothing, then as Isaiah will also prophesy uh, in, in, his, in his book, that he is a nobody, and yet at the same time, this humble and humiliated son of God is the son of God. And it is in his humility then, as we heard earlier from Philippians chapter 2, in his humility, God lowered himself, he humbled himself. It was not man who humbled God, but it was God who humbled himself. It was the son of God who brought himself low by being born of this woman, by being born into a 
nobody family in the middle of a nowhere country to a nowhere and no happening people who bought himself low and lived the same life that nobodies like you live. Sinful nobodies, like the people who come to church every Sunday and the people who are out there on Sunday instead of in here on Sunday. That he made himself one of us so that he could die on the cross because of all of your sin. Sins, just like the sins of Rahab and Ruth and Tamar and of the men who married them. He humbled himself, he made himself low, so that, as Paul then reminds us, having died for your sins, he could be raised for your everlasting life, that you may be raised from the grave with him on the last day to share in his glory, a glory, a glory or greater, of course, than David with his bloody sword or Solomon and all of his resplendent finery the glory of heaven itself, the glory with which he was clothed when he emerged from the tomb, the glory that the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the glory which you will behold with these eyes on the last day when he returns for you. Jesus Christ has given you the rest which you could not achieve. Israel strove, it strived again and again. It worked, they tried and they failed. They failed, they could not. Abraham could not keep his covenant with the Lord. His sons could not keep their covenant with the Lord. The, the prom, they could not respond in obedience to the promises that God had made to them. David could not, his sons could not, his descendants could not, Joseph could not, and Mary could not. And so the Lord has given you rest instead. Jesus Christ has given you that rest. So here is Matthew's point as you read his gospel. Here's his point in writing his gospel and in telling you about and giving you this genealogy. That Christ's coming is the fulfillment of all things and it is the end of all things. That with his work, with his life, his death, and his resurrection that we have now entered into the last age. This is the seventh, this is the seventh cycle of the Sabbaths. He has begun it. We are in it. And when it ends, will come the end of time, the end of all things, the, the eschaton, the eschatological jubilee. That though Israel in its rebellion refused to keep the jubilee in the law, God in his grace is going to give us a jubilee far greater than the one that Israel refused to keep. Israel grasped after the things of this world, just like all of us grasp after the things of this world and refuse to rest. We are a wicked people because we will not rest, because we will not take what God offers to us in Jesus Christ. And so not only has he given you, given you rest in him, now he is coming. He is coming. He is coming to bring an end to striving. He is coming to bring an end to grasping. He is coming to bring an end to your labors. And we will rest forever in the jubilee of the last day. And so this is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel, of Matthew's gospel, but of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. 
You do not have to make peace with God. You do not have to make peace with God because God has already made peace with you. Therefore, beloved, cease your striving and rest in him. The gospel is a story of how God fulfilled his promises to Abraham and David through Jesus Christ in order to give you peace. Amen. Our Lord, we give you thanks then, and we pray that out of your grace and mercy that you would grant to us the faith of Abraham, the faith of David, the faith of all the saints who have gone before us, both the ancestors of Jesus our Lord and those of us who are the children of Abraham by faith. Grant to us the faith to rest in your works, to trust in you for justification from our sins, and to trust that indeed, as you have already set us free from the curse of death and from the heavy burden of our own wicked deeds, that you will, at the right time, give us the full reward that Jesus Christ has earned for us, which is to participate in the glorious jubilee of the last day and of the new heavens and the new earth, world without end. Amen.